heart of God, and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at what God has done today. And so grab your Bible and find your way to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. All right? And you know, as, as I read these words from Rudy and Molly, they, they referenced like this, this hope. And honestly, as I've been talking with them throughout the last couple of weeks, like they've, they've challenged me, they've encouraged me, but they're, they're referencing like hope and healing that's found in Jesus and his resurrection. And this is actually where we find ourselves in our study in Mark today, that if you're new, we've spent the last like seven months studying this great historical text, which is all about the man Jesus Christ, who's not just a good man that lived a long time ago, but he's the God man that continues to live today. And today, as we continue through this journey of Mark's gospel, we're wrapping it up, all right, with the single most significant event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're really honestly in a place where we're doing Easter in September, okay? Forget Christmas in July, it's Easter in September today. But as we started studying the Gospel of Mark, all right, the, the first verse, I just want to, it's going to come up here behind me. Mark starts off by making a claim about Jesus. All right, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what's interesting, if you've been along this journey with us, this is really the only time Mark tells us what he thinks. And then for the rest of the book, as we've seen, his hope was to influence us by putting Jesus' actions and Jesus' words right in front of us and showing us how other people reacted to him so that we can be informed with what we need to hear this, to determine what we think about Jesus. This is the goal of Mark's gospel. But Mark begins with this statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And not only is he the Son of God, but he is good news for all of us. This is what gospel means. And Mark says that Jesus is the Messiah. He's, the, he's God as our Savior who's come. And I know that in a room this size, there are most definitely those of you in here where this is how you see Jesus. This is how you experience Jesus. That Jesus, you know, is not just God, but he's actually your God. And you've grabbed hold of salvation and eternity, and that's why you love to sing. I know there's some of you like that. But I also know that there's some of you in this room that maybe you're here today and this is altogether new. You don't really know what you think about Jesus. And so here is my goal. As we walk through the end of Mark, my goal is to have you leaving here actually seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Not a socially constructed Jesus, not a Jesus that you've heard from other people, not a Jesus that you grew up like hearing stories about, but Jesus as he is revealed throughout the scriptures so that you can leave here with certainty about the life of Jesus, but also your life. This is where we're going. And so for those of you who are Christians, I've been praying leading up to today that this would kind of be like a, a five-hour energy shot of worship for you today. That you would be reminded that Jesus is in fact King of kings and Lord of lords and you would leave here with wind in the sail of your life that you would be pushed forward in obedience, in love, in thanksgiving, in worship as you're reminded of who Jesus actually is. And for those of you that you're here and you're not Christians, I love that you're here. It was not that long ago that I was in the place that you are at. But my prayer for you is that you would come to Jesus in faith today. I'm not going to try and hide that. If you're wondering if I'm trying to convert you to Christianity, 100% I am. Guys, you need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And so I want you, my prayer for you is that you would actually see Jesus. So that you could actually make a decision on what you want to do with him. And so let's get into this. We're going to walk through this. I'm going to make some comments along the way, and then we're going to end with essentially asking, so what? 
Like, like as we've gone through seven months of this, like what should we be taking away from this seven-month study? And so chapter 15, verse 42, grab your Bible. This is where we're going to start. Up until this point, Jesus, he's been arrested. He's been beaten. He was scourged. He was crucified, publicly and shamefully executed. And at this point, he is dead on a cross. And this is where we pick it up. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. All right, let me just stop there, okay? So it's Friday. It's the day before the Sabbath, and Jesus is, in fact, dead. All right? John 19.34 tells us that, that one of the soldiers that was standing below the cross of Jesus, just to be sure that he was dead, actually took a spear and pierced his side and penetrated his heart. And normally, guys, as a man would die on a cross, they'd be left on the cross to really just rot or be eaten by birds or animals, and then whatever was left of the, the carcass, they would just kind of throw away and discard. But what we see here is that Jesus is going to be spared of this humiliation for, for two reasons. All right, first... All right, if you know your Bible, Deuteronomy 21, Jewish law like, just demanded that those who hung on a tree and died be taken down before sunset. So this is happening right here. But in addition to this, we see a man named Joseph. And he goes and asks for the body. All right, so at this point, it's, it's mid-afternoon. The Sabbath was beginning in just a few hours at sunset. And this is what Mark is talking about with the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was really just a time of rest that Jews would observe according to the law. No work was permitted, which means that that if they didn't get it taken care of right now, they were not going to be able to take the body of Jesus down that night or the next day. And so a man named Joseph goes to Pilate, the leader who gave the okay to crucify Jesus, and he asked him for the body. And so Joseph, guys, he's just a, we need to know a little bit about him. He's a prominent leader. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was like uh, the leaders, like the top Jewish theologians who would train the Pharisees, who were the ones who hated Jesus and ultimately wanted him killed. But there's something different about Joseph. All right, he doesn't fit in with the crowd of the religious leaders of this time. That Joseph had this hidden belief for Jesus. And again, if you know your Bible, Luke 23, we, we, Luke tells us that, that Joseph didn't agree and support the decision to execute Jesus. And then furthermore, in John's gospel, in chapter 19, John tells us that that Joseph was actually a secret disciple of Jesus, but out of fear of the Jews, he never really kind of raised his hand and joined the team. He would have never come up here and gotten baptized because he was really just in the shadows. He was ashamed of Jesus, but he had that kind of this, this hidden love. He's one of those guys that kind of like will be in his room, in his closet, and just kind of like, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but he saw the way that Jesus was being treated, and he's like, man, I'm, I'm good, Right? I'm good. I don't want any part of that. But he's the guy who loves Jesus privately, but not publicly. Which should make us wonder if he actually loved Jesus at all. And, and some of you are, are, are like this. Right? You, you're, you're, you're really like this. You, you're like this in your workplaces, your neighborhood, your friends, with your family. You don't want people to treat you differently. And so out of fear... Jesus is very much a private thing. And if that's you guys, let me just encourage you to follow Joseph's example here. 
Joseph just steps out of the shadows. He goes into the public light. He stops being ashamed of Jesus, and he's going to serve Jesus in a beautiful way after he dies. And so Joseph goes to Pilate, and he asks him for the body. And guys, if you look back, Mark notes that, that this took courage. All right, and, and here's the reason, okay? Part of the shame of crucifixion was to show that no one was with you. No one cared for you. You were all alone. And they would put you on the cross symbolically of being all alone, just kind of discarded. No one believes anything about you. And then they would execute you. And so Joseph's request to bury Jesus, it took courage because it was really just a confession and a commitment to Jesus. That the crucifixion was like Jesus is alone, no one's with him, and then Joseph says, hey, I want his body. I'm going to bury him because I care for him, I love him, I'm with him. Please give me the body and let me honor him in that way. Because this took courage. Because Joseph could have been lumped together with Jesus and killed himself. Outside of that, it was like kind of like, you know, just like, it was terrible for his career. Like he could have lost his job in the Sanhedrin. Furthermore, because of Jewish law, like he would be ceremonially unclean for dealing with a dead body. But hear this, Joseph didn't care about this because Joseph embraced what Paul says in Romans 1.16 where he says, I'm not ashamed. Any unashamed people in here? We're going to work on that today, okay? <laughs> he says, I'm unashamed. I'm unashamed of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was and he no longer could just hide in the shadows. And filled with courage, he steps up. And guys, I love this because what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, it's going to come here up on the screen. Jesus says, as for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Guys, and in this moment, I love this about Joseph's story. He steps out of the shadows. He's no longer ashamed of Jesus and his life and his relationship towards Jesus as God is totally different totally different. He has a true relationship with God. He's secure in the hands of God, and he's going to live and embrace the promises that Jesus gives. And he goes to Pilate, and if you look back to verse 44, here's what we see. He asked Pilate for the body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was there, was where he was laid, or saw where he was laid, sorry. So, guys, the way that Mark reports the burial of Jesus is really significant. Mark is, is certifying that Jesus is really dead. Okay, look back. Pilate was surprised that Jesus died so quickly, and so he calls in this Roman centurion, and he asked him to confirm that Jesus is in fact dead. And so the centurion, he's the expert here. All right, this is his job, to kill people, to make sure that they're dead. This was his job. And Pilate, as he reports to Pilate, he's the legal authority over this matter, and he says that Jesus was dead. And guys, I mention this, because as you read this, as I, I need you to not just read this as like kind of a, a historical book, but I need you to see this as a public legal transaction, okay? This was very public. This was a legal matter. That Pilate, as the ruling authority, legally announces that Jesus is dead, and then he gives Joseph 
legal permission to take the body of Jesus, okay? So this is kind of like the death penalty in our day and age today, that once you're dead, your body is handed over to someone to deal with it or to bury it. It's a legal transaction. There's paperwork, and it's very public. It's public knowledge. People know what's going on. And so the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is, in fact, dead. He's dead. This is historically verifiable. We watch Jesus be beaten, crucified. The whole point of crucifixion was to execute someone in a really painful way. And then as I mentioned earlier, John 19, we see that just to make sure they ran a spear through his side that pierced the sack in his heart. So that's why when John records that blood and water came out of his side, Jesus is in fact dead. And he's laid in a tomb. John 19 tells us that he was wrapped with upwards of 75 pounds of burial cloth and everything that went into that. And he's left in this tomb for three days with no medical attention. And so we can just state the obvious, right? As we look at this, in summary, Jesus is dead. But secondarily, I want you to look back. All right, the place that Jesus is buried was very well known. All right, Jesus' trial, his execution, his burial, this was not like a hidden thing. It wasn't like, hey, let's just, we're going we're gonna to keep this hidden. It was, it was public. People knew what was going on. And Mark points specifically to this in verse 47, mentioning that both the Marys were there. They saw where the tomb was. In John's gospel, he adds that Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus, the guy that comes to Jesus at night, the religious leader? Nicodemus, John adds, was there. And furthermore, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a wealthy man. And this was this tomb that he purchased was his real estate. So it was, it was a thing that was known that this is Joseph's real estate. It was purchased, it was registered. Nothing about this was hidden. And here's why I mention any of this, guys. Jesus' tomb in those days was very public knowledge. People knew where it was. If they wanted to go there, they could go. But here's the thing. While it was known in those days, we actually don't know where the tomb of Jesus is today. And here's why, guys. See, when important people, when significant people die and are buried, those places oftentimes are like enshrined. And people will go back and they will visit there. People will even worship at some people's tombs. And this is true of every other religious founder, major religious founder. All right, and there's four major religions that were founded by a person and not an ideology, okay? And all but one, hear this, all but one, we know exactly where the founder was buried. And people still go back there to visit. And so for the Jews, they go to a place called Hebron because that's where Abraham, the founder of, the Ju- of Judaism, is buried, In Buddhism, which was founded by the Buddha, he's buried in India, and people have enshrined this. It's a massive thing, and they go there to pay respect and to to worship. Muslims will trace their history all the way back to Muhammad, who's buried in Medina, and they will continue to this day, people from all around the world go there and to worship and to remember. The only one of the major religions that does not have the founder enshrined in a tomb and visited is Christianity. And the reason is because Jesus walked away from his tomb. And people had no reason to enshrine the tomb of a living man. They didn't care about where his tomb was. So there was no point of going back. And that's why we actually don't know where the tomb of Jesus is located, because he is alive. This is the reality of the resurrection. And this is what we're going to get into in just a minute. Mark's going to transition into this. But before we get to that, the third thing you need to know, that all of this that we're looking at, Through the book of Mark to this point, guys, 
It's the fulfillment of Scripture. All right, and, and let me just say this. If you're, you're new to Christianity, you're newer to the church, the Bible, I need you to understand and know that this is a book that God wrote. This is a book that God wrote through people. All right, and when it was originally written, 25% of it is prophetic. I mean, filled with promises given from God. And these, these prophecies, these promises that God gives throughout the Bible, the majority of them are all about Jesus. And so throughout history, what God would do is he would show up to his people and he would say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. And then Jesus steps onto the scene, and it all happens just as God said. And we could spend like hours talking about like the promises and all this that we could look at Isaiah and Hosea and Micah chapter 5, Psalm 34, on and on and on. We could do that. In fact, if you want to have your like mind blown, all right, go home tonight and read the second half of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And just see the prophetic message that God gives a man named Isaiah 700 years before Jesus even came on the scene. And see with precision how God said, this is going to happen to Jesus, and then it all happened. And I know, guys, that you can say, like, hey, Jesus probably, he knew the Old Testament, he knew all the promises, so he just orchestrated his life to fulfill all these. There's, there's a couple, you cannot, prof, you cannot control what happens to your death and afterwards. Okay, and what we're going to see, guys, I just want to show you this, all right? Isaiah 53, 9, it's going to come up here. This is what Isaiah says, 700 years before the death of Jesus. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All right, so Doxa, how was Jesus killed? Alongside the wicked. Where was Jesus buried? in a rich man's tomb. Please just hear me on this. Because we don't have a God of history, we have a God who is over history and directing history. To the extent that God raises up a rich man named Joseph to fulfill this prophecy written 700 years before Jesus stepped on the scene. That Jesus would come and he would be killed among the wicked, but then he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Jesus had no control over that, but God the Father who is directing history and glorifying Jesus the Son did. Hundreds of years before it. It's amazing, guys. This is, this is amazing, right? This is more Pentecostal, amens, the organ comes, right? Like, and we're not even to like the crazy part right now. Like we haven't even hit the resurrection, right? But I can feel like we could have the band come up here and it's great, but it's gonna be a while for that. But we're gonna look at the resurrection of Jesus now. Chapter 16, verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Solomon, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, guys, as we, as we read this and you read Mark, there's kind of like a, a strange redundancy that happens in Mark's writing. That three times in the span of eight lines, Mark records the name of some women who witnessed these events. Okay? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and then a woman named Solomon. And there's a, there's a biblical scholar named Richard Buckham, and he says that this is another way that Mark is letting us know that he's recording actual history, not writing a legend. Those of you who would maybe think that the Bible is just kind of like a fanciful storybook for adults, you need to understand that this is a historical book that's been verified and has its up, withstood like intense academic scrutiny. And as Mark mentions these three women over and over and over again, He's really just kind of saying, hey guys, this is, 
this actually happened. And if you don't believe me, if you want to like check it out for yourself and see if my story is true, like go to these three women. They'll corroborate everything that I've said because they're, they're still alive. Is we're, we're reading actual history. Actual history. But these women, they're going to the tomb of Jesus to finish the burial process. And if you look, he continues in verse three, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Okay, so they're going there, not thinking resurrection. All right, they're going there thinking like, we gotta, we gotta take care of our friend Jesus, we need to give him the proper burial stuff, but who's gonna roll away this stone? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. Underline this, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you need to do. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where he, they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, guys, three words that are the doorway to understanding the man Jesus Christ. He has risen. This is the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what I need you to understand. Because all of this, again, is to fulfill Scripture. And any time I can show and, and show you just like how much God is in control and who Jesus actually is, I'm going to take it. And so I want to show you this. I just want to give you two examples, okay? The first one is going to come up here, Psalm 1610. Given a thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And God says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So God is talking about the grave. He's talking about death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so as we look at this, guys, we, we need to ask some questions, okay? So we ask, like, who is the holy? Who's holy? How many are holy? One, right? Not a trick question. Just, there's one. God says that all of us are unholy, but there is, in fact, one who is holy. And all of us are unholy because every single one of us has a sin issue in our life. All right, this is, this is the storyline of, of the world, of creation, that God created us to be in perfect relationship, and humanity just didn't listen to God. We did our own thing. Sin came into the world, severed it, making us unholy. This is why on our own we can't be in the presence of God because he is the holy one. We are not, and he can't get dirty. And every single one of us, guys, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you shine yourself up and make everybody think that you're the best amazing person, you hold open doors, you give away money, you volunteer, you do all that stuff, you have darkness in your life. Every one of us. The Bible calls this sin, and it separates us from God. And God says, this is you being unholy. But God says, there is one who is holy, and his name is Jesus. And so God says the Holy One is going to come. He's going to be put into the grave. He's going to die. A thousand years in advance, God tells us who Jesus is and what Jesus was going to do because he's going to come out of the grave. I mean, this is crazy, guys. Right? I, don't, I can't tell if this is on. Right? This is crazy. But again, if we look at Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, take a look. 700 years before Jesus, this is what Isaiah says. God speaks through Isaiah, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
So this is talking about Jesus. Jesus was in fact beaten. He was tortured beyond recognition, crucified. He has put him to grief. And throughout Mark's gospel, we've watched Jesus shed tears, cry, experience immense grief and suffering. But he goes on to say, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's speaking of sin here. That Jesus is, is not a sinner, but he will die, in fact, for our sin, for your sin and for my sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That Jesus will, in fact, die. His days will come to an end. But then he's going to get more days. He's going to come back. This is the resurrection. This is life after death that Isaiah is talking about. And then if you look, the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That Jesus, his ultimate supreme goal is not to like make you a better person, but it's to give you life, it's to save you from your sin, to reconcile us back to God. This is, what, this is what Jesus came to do. Make no mistake of this. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here, that he is conquering death through his resurrection. And then Isaiah goes on to say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied that he's coming back by his knowledge shall the righteous one, all right, this is again in Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Guys, here's what God is saying. He's, gonna, he's saying, I'm gonna send my righteous one and he's gonna come to the unrighteous and he's gonna serve them, he's gonna suffer for them and he's gonna die for their sin and through his resurrection, he's gonna come back and he's gonna conquer Satan, sin, death and hell and because of that, you can be counted as righteous. This is the gospel. This is what you need, I need, everybody needs above everything else. Someone needs to hear this, guys. You don't make yourself good, okay? You just don't make yourself good. You believe in Jesus and he gives you his righteousness. He takes your sin, he takes your shame, he takes your guilt and he gives you his righteousness and brings you to God. And if you're here, please do not spin your wheels in your life trying to be better. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And we come back to that over and over and over again. It's the gospel. This is what we, every single one of us needs. This is what every book of every chapter is about in your Bible. It points to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, which is for you, and that's good news. And so this is what he's saying. Now guys, this is, as I share this, this is the most significant news, the most significant event in the history of the world. And what happens, and what has happened throughout history is that there are those who, who don't wanna believe that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they don't wanna believe in the resurrection, and so what they do is they have to develop some really just kind of honestly, really wonky ideas and theories about what has happened with Jesus and his resurrection because, guys, the historicity of the resurrection is so intense. It is so compelling. There are tangible, historically verifiable evidences that literally surround the resurrection, that point to the resurrection actually happening that secular people who would refuse to believe and worship Jesus, they just have to come up with something to, as counter theories. And honestly, guys, as, I don't know if you've done this, I've looked at all these theories. They're not compelling. <laughs> They're not super compelling. I'm just gonna throw out a qu couple quick ones to you. One is that they literally forgot what tomb they put Jesus in. 
okay? It's called the wrong tomb theory. I'm not making this up, okay? Another one is, is crazy. It's called the swoon theory, which is that Jesus didn't actually die, but that he was crucified, went through all of this stuff. He was beaten, he was pierced, and he just passed out from the pain. And then they wrapped him up, they threw him in a tomb, they sealed it, but then Jesus woke up and unwrapped himself and with severed hands somehow rolled away this huge stone, walked out, saw the Roman guards, said hey, and then walked into town to tell everybody that he was doing so well and they should follow him. There's people that believe this. It's called the swoon theory. One of the more crazy ones, guys, is called the twin theory. All right, the, the philosopher Robert Craig, all right, he actually did this. Like he believes this and propagates this, is that Jesus had a, an unknown twin and they were separated at birth and after Jesus' death, the twin heard about this, came back, and then was like, man, this could be a, a really good career for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that I'm my brother and just keep going with this. Guys, I'm not making this up. But guys, here, these theories and a dozen more are theories that like legitimate historians have come up with. They've written papers on. They've written books on it because they can't bring themselves to worship Jesus as God regardless of the facts. And so they say something else besides the resurrection had to have happened. Because if the resurrection is true, that means that Jesus is God. That means that all the words in the Bible are true. That means there is a heaven and a hell. And depending on what you do with him, determines your destination. And they cannot get to that point. And so they make other theories. Guys, I need you to understand this. This is not me throwing stones. It's desperation that's birthed out of pride. And I lived there for many years. And if this is you, if you love this kind of stuff, okay, I'll give you, there's gonna be a book that pops up here. N.T. writes, The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you're like wanting to like nerd out and learn all these things, it's 850 pages of like just pure like deliciousness, okay? <laughs> and, and if you just wanna learn, to be able to just like know when people throw these theories, especially in an academic city like Madison, read this book and you'll find out, guys, the historicity of the resurrection and you'll understand why by 351 AD, 51% of the Roman Empire claimed Jesus as the risen king and this is pre-Constantine. It's a big deal. But back to Mark, these women, they show up to the tomb they're not expecting the resurrection. They're told by an angel that Jesus is risen. He's given a new task to tell the disciples the good news, which is the gospel. And here's how Mark ends his gospel. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so stunned. All right, these women start running from the tomb. They're astonished, saying nothing to everyone. And thus, Mark's gospel comes to an end. Now, if you're looking at your Bible in front of you right now, you see additional verses in there. And before those additional verses, there's, there's a note there that says that these are not found in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. And so chances are that these, because of the abrupt ending, some people will say the end of Mark's gospel somehow got lost. Don't think that's true. I'll tell you why. But other people would say because it got lost, they added these in later on. So it doesn't contradict Scripture but it's not actual scripture, and so we don't go to it and teach it in that way. But this is kind of a strange, abrupt ending that can seem a little bit confusing, okay, right? You're like, it just ends. 
They run away. What are we supposed to do with that? That doesn't seem right. Guys, a man named Sinclair Ferguson helped us to have like a perspective on this. I want you to listen to what he says. I quote, should the women have not returned home rejoicing in the good news that they had heard? Is there not something unexpected about this response? That in, in itself is a mark of authenticity. If we were to invent the story, we would not end it in this way. But it's more. In Mark's gospel, the fear, this fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. It is the fear the disciples experienced when Jesus stilled the storm. The fear of the Gerasenes when Jesus delivered legion. The fear of the disciples as they saw Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross. This fear is the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. We've been seeing this all the way through Mark. No one expected this resurrection, even though Jesus repeatedly told them about it. And in many respects, like these women who heard the announcement of the resurrection but didn't see Jesus physically with them, Mark leaves us with a question. Will they respond with faith or fear? Mark's whole gospel, including the empty tomb story, is a call to faith instead of fear in the face of uncertain future. And we know what these women did. They embraced it. They were filled with faith. They believed and they took the gospel to people, which is why we have the gospel today. So that's what these women did. But Mark's ending also makes us look internally and say, well, what are we going to do with Jesus and his gospel? And I need you to understand this, guys. You can reject Jesus, but you can't ignore Jesus. That he is the risen king. He is God. His factual resurrection means that all he said is true. And so what that means is every single one of us here, as we leave this building, we will all make a decision today. We will either receive him or we will reject him. You can reject him, but you can't ignore him. He's alive, and, and the truth of Philippians, like one day we will all stand before King Jesus. Whether you believe in him or not, he will come back, and we will all give an account for our life. And depending on what you do with Jesus in this life, that day is either going to be the best day or the worst day of your life. And we started this church like five years ago to cause as many best days to happen as possible. Because God loves you and we love you. The big idea is this, guys. Since Jesus is alive, you need to trust him. So we just spent 28 weeks going through Mark. Let me wrap it up with this. Docs, Christianity at its root is not just about faith, but it's about facts. It's belief in facts. It's belief in a fact of something that is actual, historical, and recorded. And because of the fact of the resurrection, here's what can be true of you if you come to Jesus. I'm going to give you five things. Number one, you can find complete contentment. Complete contentment. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of humanity. And you might not think it like this, but you have certainly felt it and you're feeling it now. But this is why you're always on the move to try and find something to fulfill you. This is why you go from guy to guy or to girl to girl. This is why you're chasing money. You're trying to find something that's going to make you happy, but you realize very quickly that as soon as you grab hold of that thing, 
it doesn't actually do it, and you're on to the next. God has placed eternity in your heart, and it's through Jesus that that eternity is met, and we find contentment in life. Stop running and come to Jesus. Number two, you can know with certainty that God is able. Guys, and I love this, okay? I, I love this. Look back to chapter six, or verse six of chapter 16. The angel says, he has risen. Now, this doesn't come across in our translation, but the Greek here is, is a passive construct. So more accurately, the rendering in the reading should be, he has been raised. And Mark has used this language before to highlight what God is doing. And so in Mark 15, 38, where it says that the temple curtain was torn, in 16, in 16.4, when he says that the stone has been rolled back, in 16.6, that he says he has risen, what this is actually saying is that God tore the curtain. God rolled the stone. God raised Jesus. There is nothing that our God can't do. Amen? We absolutely believe this. Let, me just in, let this encourage you as you walk through and you navigate through the impossibilities of life. Guys, things in your life might not seem to make sense. They might seem totally over your head, but you need to understand and you need to realize that while they're over your head, they're still under his feet, that God is able. And you trace this through the entire books of the Bible, and we see repeatedly and emphatically that God can do the miraculous, and we believe in that, and we hold to that, and we pray for that, that God can do miraculous things in your life. The most miraculous thing is to take you from a sinner to a saint from dead to life. Number three, guys, you can have absolute assurance in your salvation. I know that there's some of you here that you're constantly questioning if you're good with God. You, 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 you've come up to the front, you've raised your hand, you've gotten baptized, but then you keep sinning, and you're gonna keep sinning. I have sin in my past, I have sin in my present, and I have sin that I haven't gotten to, I'm gonna do it. This is the reality of all of our lives. We're gonna keep sinning until we see Jesus face to face in eternity. But for some of you, I know that like, this is hard for you and you're wondering, am I good with him? Like, does he love me? Like, what is my end? If that is you, I need you to understand the truth of chapter 16, verse seven. Look back. The angel says, he's risen. Now, go tell the disciples and circle this in your Bible. And Peter. You see this? Peter, the one who turned his back on Jesus, betrayed Jesus in his darkest hour. The angel says, there is good news. He preaches the gospel, and he says, go tell the disciples. And he could have in that moment said, hey, go tell the disciples except for Peter. He messed up too much. But the grace of God, the love of God, God is a better savior than we are a sinner. And so he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. You need to understand that God loves you like Peter. And so when you mess up, when you're unfaithful, God is faithful and his grace covers all. You need to know this is assurance. Number four, you can obtain ultimate perspective in your life. Guys, if this is the only life, if there is no future life, if there is no resurrection, the stuff that we're going through right now, those losses, the death that we experience, it should bring about just a complete train wreck to our life and it should be despair. Your life should just be marked with depression and anxiety and hopelessness. But like we sang earlier, we know how the story ends. This life is not the end. That for the Christian, the best is yet to come. Give that perspective, let that give you perspective that you might not have everything you want right now, 
but in eternity with Jesus, you're gonna have everything you need and everything is gonna be glorious and beautiful. And then lastly, guys, you have an urgent mission to live out. Jesus saves us to continue what he started. There's a mission in front of us. People need Jesus. These women, they went and ran and told people. When Jesus comes back and he's resurrected, Acts chapter one, he meets with his people. He says, there's a mission. Acts chapter one, verse eight. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the end of the world, the end of the earth. And you remember, and then he ascends back into heaven and the disciples are standing there and they just look up and they're just standing there. And then some angels after like, I don't know, 20 minutes or something like that show up and they're like, hey, what are you doing? He said, go. People need to hear that he's alive. Go, go. And guys, we as Christians today are really good at doing this. And you know what that looks like? It looks like sitting in a chair, staring at a screen. And we think that this is like the pinnacle of my existence as a Christian. And we miss the fact that Jesus, he rose and he said, go. Tell the world that I am God. Tell the world that I am alive. Tell the world that I love them and I have made a way for him. This is the gospel. It compels us to go. And Mark ends with saying, what are you going to do with it? Come to Jesus today, Doxa. Let me pray. God, we love you. Jesus, you are in fact alive, and so that means that we need to trust you. We can trust you. You are in fact good. And I thank you for your grace and your love that just makes me clean, that washes away my sin. You've taken just a dirty, pathetic man named Rob Warren, and you have put your sonship on me through Jesus, and I just say thank you. And so as we sing and we celebrate what you have done, would you allow worship, wonder, awe, and praise to stir within us? And we would leave here rejoicing, filled with hope, understanding that we have a mission to share this with every single person that we come in contact with so that they can have the hope and the joy and the love and the grace that we do. God, empower us in Jesus' name. Amen.